Bandwidth for ChangeLog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. Welcome to Request for Commits, a podcast that explores different perspectives in open source sustainability. On this show, we talk to people about the human side of code. We cover everything from community and governance to businesses and licensing. If you've ever wondered how open source projects get started, survive, die, or flourish, then you're going to love this show. I'm Nadia Ekbal. And I'm Michael Rogers. On today's show, Michael and I talk with Brendan Eich, who founded Brave, an open source web browser based on Chromium. He's also the creator of JavaScript and co-founder of Mozilla. We talked with Brendan about how the web has been funded, including a look back on the early browser wars and emerging monetization models. We also talked about why big problems are hard to solve for the internet and the trade-offs between centralization and distribution. So, Brennan, you've been in the the browser game since uh, I think they invented browsers. <laughs> so, why don't you give us just a, a quick kind of background on uh, the browsers that you worked on and kind of how the browser landscape has changed over the last twenty years? Sure. Uh, actually, uh, Tim Berners Lee keeps moving the date when he started browsers back. So, I don't know if it was eighty nine or ninety. I started. Um, you, I became aware of them uh, in ninety three and started using uh, Mosaic around then. I think I then used Netscape when it came out in fall 94. And that was super hot and took over the browser market. And I joined Netscape in April, early April 1995. And that's when I did JavaScript notoriously in 10 days in May. And I worked the rest of the summer getting it embedded and having a sort of primitive DOM so it could interact with the page elements and shipping in Netscape 2. Um, <laughs> those were the days, right? You, Browsers were, were big. We were doing secure uh, socket layer, so-called HTTPS, now TLS uh, for transport layer security. So you could have your credit card number flying around to various sites without worrying about you know, snoopers stealing it. And JavaScript was kind of a toy then, but it was also um, in the browser. It was right there in the page. You could write it integrated with your HTML. You could do very sweet sort of single-page application tricks even in 1995, with all the bugs and without, you know, XHR, you could do a lot. So the promise was there. Java was supposed to be the big thing, but it eventually was just a plug-in. I think it, it always was inside this rectangle. It always was a complex language for people to learn if you weren't a professional programmer. So the whole Java, JavaScript, you know, Netscape plus Java takes down Windows thing didn't really happen. I got Microsoft's attention, and, and they did IE. Bill Gates did his famous internet tidal wave uh, speech because he had a bunch of people he had to whip into shape who thought they were just going to take down AOL or, or CompuServe or something. And they were building a proprietary dial-up content system. And it, I'm sure it would have sucked. And instead, they, they pivoted and caught, you know, bought Spyglass, built up IE, um, embraced Netscape pioneered standards like JavaScript and extended them. And we worked together to standardize JavaScript and eventually Netscape got extinguished. That's the 30 after Embrace and Extend. Um, and I founded Mozilla because it was, I was done standardizing JavaScript. It was 1997 toward the end of the year. Um, I remember going to the Paris sales office of Netscape and I realized, well, you know, Barksdale's been telling us Microsoft's taking the price of the browser to zero because at that time, you may recall, Netscape actually sold the browser for money 
um, to enterprises. It was free for students and family home use, but it was it was still making money. Microsoft not only made Internet Explorer free, they bundled it with Windows 98, which was, you know, monopoly operating system. So they did they did stuff that just was guaranteed to kill Netscape's business. Netscape had also gone public in 95, um, well before being profitable, but it was the super hot startup. You know, the stock zoomed up on the first day. Um, and that kicked off the dot-com era of crazy startups. And it gave Netscape a war chest to buy companies, which hardly ever works. Mergers and acquisitions rarely work. In this case, they bought a bunch of startups, which were all you know, not really taking over the world as Netscape had. And they tried to bet the farm on them or, or build up a server-side business that never really took. Um, they bought a, a sort of groupware <laughs> client, Windows client uh, company called Calabra. And because the original Netscape team, browser team was kind of fried, and because of this ambition to take on Lotus Notes, they gave that, that company the sort of keys to the browser kingdom. And that, that just made things worse. Netscape 4 was, was late, and initially only on Windows, and Bucky has all get out. Um, Jamie Zawinski's got some, some old articles about this, if you want to read about that era. It was not fun to go through that. But the, the, the only things that I, I remember being positive were getting JavaScript standardized and then founding Mozilla. And Mozilla was meant to be a, a, an escape pod, right? In, uh, in Star Wars Episode Four, A New Hope, right? This escape pod gets out and, and from the rebel ship that's been uh, tr- tractor beamed and docked by the Star Destroyer. And, and the Star Destroyer crew, slackers that they are, don't just blow it up for target practice. They let it land. And of course, the droids are in it. <laughs> Microsoft. You know, Microsoft must have must have been like those sloppy uh, Imperial gunners because they didn't think anything was going to happen. And who knew? It took four years to actually get the code in decent shape, which was many more years than some of my friends, the principal engineers who were working on it, told their management at Netscape. So Netscape kept getting, you know, missing the mark with things like Netscape 6, which was a terrible release, right? Black and blue colored user interface with circular buttons. It was very buggy. Uh, Mitchell Baker and I told told Netscape management, don't do it. Everybody in the rank and file engineering staff said, don't do it. But the executives who sold themselves to AOL as, as able to you know, turn Netscape around in some sense said, no, we've got to do it for morale. <laughs> and, and so they forced it out. In, and that was in 2002, no, 2001. I can't remember. It was terrible and it bombed. And I think some of those executives got their heads handed to them and replaced. So by 2002, Mozilla code was actually getting good. We were doing builds initially. Jamie Lusinski said, don't do builds. You have to be a developer. You have to have a compiler. You have to know what C is. Do your own builds. And it limited you know, testing and limited our reach. So we started doing QA builds of Mozilla, which were like Netscape without all the AOL, ICQ, AIM <laughs> buttons that people didn't want anyway. Remember, those things were like AOL Instant Messenger, and ICQ was another Instant Messenger. So Mozilla builds were cleaner, and they actually got fairly popular. I think at some point they were actually more popular than Netscape. But after we did Mozilla 1.0 in 2002, we said, now the code's good enough, we can build something. We already had a pirate ship called initially Mozilla slash browser, then Phoenix, then Firebird, and ultimately Firefox going. And that was a small group of people inside Netscape initially, um, led by Dave Hyatt, who was senior, and Blake Ross, who was junior. He'd been a high school student intern at Netscape. And they'd created this lightweight, just a browser off of the Mozilla code, 
where Mozilla was still doing a suite because you did suites in the 90s, right? You were trying to take on Lotus Notes or you wanted to have Outlook like mail, you, you do a suite. Oh, yeah. As Blake joked about this, yes, I want to use my suite so I can look in my address book for my friend and open a new email compose window, tell them about the George Foreman grill that I saw while browsing the web, and then send them an aim link so they can, they can aim or ICQ back to me. You know, nobody did that, right? It was, it, was, <laughs> it was this bloated mess. So by doing just uh, Phoenix, and I'll call it that for the 2002 era, um, we started getting traction. Even though it was a pirate ship, it was a small you know, open source project. Um, people got excited about what could a browser be? So in 2003, Dave Hyatt, who'd already quit Netscape and gone to Apple to help Safari actually reach the big time. Dave was a huge win for Apple because when he left, um, he, uh, he had um, lots of expertise on web compatibility and, and CSS rendering and everything. And I think the WebKit team, strong as they were, lacked that skill set. So Hyatt was a huge recruit to Apple. But even at Apple, he kept working on Phoenix got in a little trouble sometimes for blogging about it a little too openly. He would blog about what he'd learned about implementing tab browsing multiple times in Phoenix and Chimera, which now then became called Camino, and uh, other sort of practice tab implementations he'd done. He'd studied, uh, like, on, on, what was it called? Omni, OmniWeb and uh, iCab and other browsers. NetCaptor that had some kind of tabs. Opera had Windows, like, MDI tabs. Anyway, Hyatt was a huge uh, force for Mozilla code. And even after he went to Apple, he was helping Phoenix, Firebird, Firefox. 2003, Hyatt and I wrote a roadmap update. Roadmap was the Mozilla document that I wrote and updated every, maybe every year at most, trying to get people all moving in the same direction without having to you know, tell them what to do. Just align everybody toward the same goals and common architecture and important requirements and anti-requirements. Like, it's important to say what you're not doing as well as what you are doing, make exclusions and, and forswear things because you can't be all things to all people. What Hyatt and I did double down on that by saying, let's do just the browser. Let's, let's get rid of the suite, the Mozilla suite. It became SeaMonkey. Volunteers tended it. Let's do a browser, Firebird, I think it was called in 2003. Let's do just a, a mail app, Thunderbirds. We had birds. And let's do extensions for them. Let's take out a lot of the complexity that the Netscape AOL designers and Others have festooned the preferences with, and let's, let's put um, a lot of that complexity into extensions that can be downloaded. We called them add-ons. They, they were all written in the same sort of XML, JavaScript, CSS language that Firebird and Thunderbird were written in. They, they were lightweight enough that you could have people build them without having to you know, become experts on the code. They had fairly stable APIs for integrating, and they could integrate with a lot of the user interface. They could change the toolbars, they could inject content or context menu items, things like that. So that was a big roadmap update in 2003 that Hyatt and I did. I don't think Apple got mad at him for putting his name on it. And that really just aimed the rocket that became Firefox toward release in November 2004. In a way, I think that like up to that point, like now you have essentially tab browsing. Now you have kind of the beginnings of Safari, right? Yeah. Um, and the, then, then that leads into Chrome eventually. But like by, by this point, the cost of all browsers has gone to zero, right? Like the last browser that people paid for was probably what? I, or no, Netscape 6, right? No, even that was, I believe, free. Netscape went free oh, wow. uh, in the 90s because of the Microsoft taking the price. I would say the price went to zero. The cost all in was still like a billion dollars over multiple years. 
like estimates from the USV Microsoft antitrust case and things you hear about the cost of Chrome, even though they used WebKit or the cost to Apple of Safari and WebKit come in around a billion, but sometimes you, it's puffed up with marketing spend. It's still an awful lot of non-recurring engineering. And the good thing is Mozilla taught everybody the benefits of open source. So you have three now open source engines in full, you know, uh, Chromium, Blink, uh, WebKit, and Mozilla originally. You have, um, and, and WebKit reabsorbed KHTML from which it sprang. Um, Hyatt had to make it web compatible, and the KHTML people didn't think that was necessary, but eventually they, <laughs> they lost. Um, and now you even have Chakra Core, the Microsoft Edge uh, and IE JavaScript engine open source on GitHub. So the good news is that these huge sunk costs uh, and ongoing costs are, are being developed in the open. Um, so the, in some ways you could say the cost is zero to like my company Brave. <laughs> it's not, there's no, <laughs> nothing's ever free, but, but thanks to all this open source and open standards and they go together, we have um, significant um, web engines all in the open. There's still a cost, though, that, that you're incurring to develop on top of it. Absolutely. But before we get into to, to Brave's model, how are these other browsers funding their browsers? I mean, especially with some of them taking on billion-dollar costs and then you know, later maybe a little bit less like with Chrome. But like, what are the incentive structures there, and how do they actually end up making money? I think it's easy. I think with, let's start in historical order with um, you know, IE was to, to avoid Netscape plus Java kills Windows. I think Gates did think that was scary. Andreasen was going around waving his arms, saying it too much, and a bunch of us were like, "Shut up! You'll get it, get their attention." And I heard that a board member of Microsoft sent him email, Mark Andreasen email at the end of '95, saying, "Well, you waved the cape in the bull's face. Now you're going to get the horns." So Microsoft did IE, and they did a good job eventually with IE4 on Windows. Right? It was better than Netscape 4, which had been sort of trashed by that groupware company uh, and the founders, kind of being burned out, not working on it. Uh, mostly not working on it, but IE was actually pretty good, and Microsoft needed it, I think, to keep up with the Joneses. Not just Netscape, but at that point, Apple was coming back, heading toward. I think they they went through that near death experience with the wired cover that says "Pray," and then you know Jobs came back and started doing i iMacs, and i i was for internet. This is in that movie um, that uh, they made recently, the third act of that movie. So. The internet mattered. And even though Microsoft hadn't given up on Windows lock-in and still had hopes going into the, the noughties that they would bring back you know, Windows Vista or make the web kind of fade away again, the web was, was there to stay. So Microsoft needed a browser and he needed to own the category. And Safari, same thing. Jobs, you know, he's doing um, hot new Macs in, the, in 2001, 2002. He launched the iPod around then, um, 2002, I think. He needed a browser, and it was a secret at first. It came, became public, I think, in 2003, Safari did, and it was, um, it was important to have something that kept up with the Joneses and was shiny in that Steve Jobs sense. It was one of the brush metal apps originally. It looked special. But unfortunately, I think, and, and this is what led to WebKit, uh, it got kind of checklisted as done, and then Jobs didn't really invest in it. He put it in the same sort of org chart where you have 10 people working on AppKit, 10 people working on WebKit, 10 people working on, you know, Cocoa, whatever. And it wasn't uh, funded well enough because it's hard to do a browser. And Apple didn't have an advertising business or a search business to subsidize it. They had a search deal with Google that was quite lucrative. Um, that was one of the things we knew about before we did our search deal with Google in 2004. And we knew it was possible to get good money out of search if you had browser users and they were, you know, high value users. 
But, um, you know, the same story sort of repeats. As companies like Microsoft and Apple check off the browser box in their list of to-dos, they kind of neglect it because it's not their main business. Opera was, did have, for a long time, the browser as their main business. And, and while they certainly, under John von Tetschner, who's doing Vivaldi now, they certainly went toward advanced users and added a lot of extra features, some of which we were factoring into add-ons in Firefox, they cared about the browser. And Mozilla cared about the browser. And you could tell, you could get some users, you're just, your quality's a little better, you're, you're in it for the browser, you're not in it for operating system monopoly or shiny device you know, uh, growth or you know, search or whatever, ad, ad revenue. You're doing the browser for its own good. That always matters. And, and people can tell in the market, your lead users tend to gravitate. But you know, it, Safari was not going to take back a whole lot of market share just from the, the MacBooks or whatever they were, the iBooks of, of the time, um, the iMacs. It really took uh, Firefox, which got, got up to 27% share at its peak, uh, just kept growing because IE still wasn't good. Microsoft still hadn't quite put their A team on it. And, you know, eventually uh, we did that search deal with Google in 2004. We had Google engineers helping late 2004 through 2005 into 2006. And then they all disappeared. And we knew from private communications, we didn't talk about it because of NDAs, they were doing Chrome. And <laughs> I think Jobs knew too. Jobs hated this, right? He's like, you can't use WebKit. That's my open source. <laughs> <laughs> he threw a chair about and uh, against the wall because of Android, which he viewed as stealing his design. But uh, with WebKit, it was more like, that's my source. But WebKit itself was a fork of KHTML, this very sort of elite European project, part of the KDE Linux desktop that started, I think, in 98. It started late in 98, around the time that Mozilla um, re started to rewrite the code base. Um, my first roadmap in October 98. So KHTML was high quality, but it wasn't web compatible. It was very sort of by-the-book standards. It didn't do what's called residual style uh, sort of error correction on CSS when when you have a a bold and then an italic open tag and then you close the bold first and then the italic it's not a tree structured DOM uh, and it didn't do the right thing and there are lots of other crazy things you can do in HTML which Hixie and others wrote up as you know HTML5 in the WebWG and now you know we know that as a standard living standard but HTML didn't do that and Dave Hyatt at, at Apple having jumped from Netscape had to do that he's like I've got to do it. So he was patch bombing KHTML every six months with these giant change sets, generally good changes, but the elite Euro hackers, I think a lot of them at that point might've been at Trolltech. I'm not sure if it existed yet then, but they ended up joining the QT company, Trolltech in Oslo. They said, no, we don't need this. In Europe, we balance our tags properly. You Americans, <laughs> go work on your HTML markup balance and, and stop polluting our perfect code with your ugly error corrections. And, uh, and so it became a fight. and. Hyatt, meanwhile, this is, <laughs> I've told the story in a few places, Hyatt, meanwhile, was being recruited by, around 2005, early 2005, by us, by Google, and uh, another company I'm forgetting. But he, he was kind of on the market because he was fed up, because Apple had, indeed, Steve had checklisted the browser. It wasn't getting enough funding. It was just another, you know, XKit team, WebKit, AppKit. And by the way, the AppKit team wasn't that sharp compared to the WebKit team. Really good hackers on WebKit, but they, they needed more help, and they weren't getting it so far. I got fed up. Um, Flock was being spun out, um, you know, by Bart the Krem alone uh, from Mozilla because he wanted to do a .dot com uh, for Firefox in late 2004, and you know it was already nonprofit. The answer from the board was no, and so Bart said, "Okay, I'm going to do 
clock. And what he called it when he first went to get VC funding was round two. It's like, thanks, Bart. We were round one, you're round two. I guess we didn't have the fight to go the distance. But, <laughs> but you know, eventually Flock failed. But while he was getting funding and recruiting for it, he started recruiting his old buddy, Maciej Stokowiak, whom he knew from Nautilus, where Andy Hertzfeld also had been, which was sort of a Linux, more aptly Linux desktop thing, um, file manager thing. And Maciej was a force at WebKit, one of the founders, along with Darren Adler. And he, he got Hyatt's number somehow. And Hyatt said, yeah, this Bart guy keeps calling me. I had to bust out Mean Dave on him <laughs> because Hyatt's usually nice and soft-spoken, very thoughtful. But Bart kept bugging him, saying, come to Flock. I'll give you lots of you know, options. We'll, we'll take down Firefox. We'll, we'll, you know, it'll be much better than your Apple job. But Hyatt was upset because uh, Apple wasn't investing enough. So he was looking around. I don't think there was any way he would have come to Mozilla, but he did interview at Google, which he hated. They gave him puzzles. And um, I think this this was his name was not it was probably redacted in the materials, the discovery materials for the so-called Tectopus case. You guys know about that? The antitrust. It's a straight up Sherman Clayton antitrust violation, right? Uh, Google, Apple, Adobe, Intel were like collaborating, not poach each other's or even hire each other's top talent. Oh, right, right, right. Which is suppressing salaries. Yeah, yeah. And, and it was really, the worst, really nauseating to me was Eric Schmidt sort of cravenly apologizing to Steve Jobs for even daring to talk to some, some engineers in France who might have been from Next and may have had some Apple relationship, but weren't even necessarily being hired by Apple. But Steve was outraged that they might be recruited by Google, and he made Eric sort of bow and scrape. Um, so <laughs> I was having dinner with Sergey and Larry and Mitchell Baker in, in early 2005, and I heard this, um, Sergey comes in late, and he says, I'm oh, sorry, I just got off the phone with Steve Jobs. He was just screaming, cussing, cussing at me. He said, don't touch Hyatt, right? So there was this definite um, restraint of, of uh, employee, you know, tech talent trade going on there. And Hyatt didn't go anywhere. He stayed at Apple. And one of the prices, I think, for Maché and Hyatt to stay at Apple, I'm not sure how seriously they were ever going to leave, uh, because Apple's pretty good to its engineers. They're birds in gilded cages. They work very hard. They're very smart. And they, they work on shiny devices and they get well comped. But uh, they, they seem to be loose enough that it, they had some leverage. And they said, you know, if we stay, this is what I heard, let's do honest open source. Let's not patch bomb cage to mail every six months. Let's make webkit.org. Let's learn from Mozilla. We'll make our own mini Mozilla and we'll, we'll do proper open source there. And they did. And that was 2005. So, um, I think that was a good thing, and it helped, you know, give that gift of WebKit to Google, which they secretly started using for Chrome in 2006. <laughs> that's that's great. So so it sounds like like for the most part, all the costs are deferred, like to to create these things by some massive company that has a bunch of other interests. And that's right. And eventually, they get bored with it because they don't have direct sustainability. Mo Mozilla does have direct sustainability kind of baked in, right? Like there, it does generate revenue from the browser to fund the browser, correct? Well, you could, you could say that about Google, too, because it's all search revenue. And for Google, Chrome is right. just the lower you know, traffic acquisition cost device. Like right now, I think to get search deals um, in other browsers from Google is very hard. Bing is still a competitive in the U.S. It has 20-something percent, depending on who you ask. And, uh, you know, Vivaldi has Bing as their default search partner, and they get a revenue share. Google was sharing revenue with Firefox in the original deal we did at such a clip that we got alarmed and we thought, oh no, we're going to have you know, trouble taking this as a nonprofit. We're going to have too much money. We're going to look like a, a giant billion dollar hole in Eric Schmidt's balance sheet by you know, January 2006. So we actually, <laughs> I think this was a mistake. We took a lower 
much lower revenue share above a certain absolute amount. We, the blended cost of Firefox traffic was very low. We were the best traffic acquisition deal Google ever had. And it still didn't prevent Chrome. It just kicked the can a few years down the road. But as you say, they have a big business, search ads. They need to make sure that people are searching. Google got very worried in the mid-2000s about Microsoft coming back with IE. They'd done IE7 in response to Firefox. It still wasn't that great, but they started you know, distributing again. It was still the default browser. They'd gotten in trouble in Europe with the European Commission, so they had to make a browser choice panel, which allowed people to pick Firefox as their default, but they still had a lot of um, Internet Explorer traction. Google had started selling Google, Google Desktop and Google Toolbar and getting some Windows presence through that. Sundar Pichai did a lot of that work, which I think in, their, in the view of you know, Schmidt and, and Sergey and Larry saved the day because if Microsoft in you know, 2008 or so with Bing being a new thing had suddenly said, hey, we're setting search back to Bing on all the browsers, especially all the Internet Explorer browsers that we control through Windows Update, bye-bye Google. Google would have been in trouble. So they had these Google desktop search, they had Google toolbar footprint, they had OEM deals to distribute those. And thanks to Sundar, they had some ability to fight back and make sure that the search default didn't get set away from Google. Because Google was obviously still like the best. Um, Bing was even worse then. It's gotten better. It's, it's hard to tell. I've heard people say if you label the Bing results with Google's brand, people say, hey, that's the best. It, in the long tail of you know, four or five keyword searches, Google's still the best, in my opinion. But this was to just to show, like you said, that you need a big company with another business that can bear the cost and actually find the cost preferable to paying for outside sources of search traffic, for instance, or to, in Microsoft's case, have, have a browser and fend off Netscape or compete with Apple, or in Apple's case, have a browser and compete with Microsoft. And that competition still goes on, right? Safari is denying Chrome 95% market share that Windows IE reached in, I think, 2003 or four. If you look in Wikipedia, uh, I think just before Firefox took it back, IE topped around 95%. Chrome will not get to 95%. And, and I'm talking across mobile and desktop, and it's because of iOS Safari. To a lesser extent, it's because of, of Safari on Mac. It's because of Firefox, which is losing share still. Chrome is the only browser growing, according to some of my friends at very big companies who would know, very big web-facing companies. Uh, it's growing slowly, but it will not get to 95%. And this, this, keeps, this dynamic keeps things still somewhat balanced in the standards bodies, though everyone worries, you know, if Google gets too powerful, will they start overreaching and waste time on, on stuff? And they already did, right? They did native client, portable native client. They did Dart. Um, that stuff wasted a lot of time. But they also invested in the web. And here we are. The, the sunk cost problem is, is, is not just a one-time thing. It's an ongoing thing. Browsers cost. And you mentioned Mozilla. I can't really comment on their economics because Verizon bought Yahoo, and I have no insight. And even the Yahoo deal was after I left. But just from the outside, looking at the balance sheets and the mark-to-market of Yahoo, if you subtract Alibaba and the SoftBank share, even in 2014, doesn't look good. So it's, it's tricky doing a browser, especially if you don't have a lot of users or if you have a declining user base and Chrome is starting to become the, I wouldn't say the monopoly, but the, the senior duopoly partner. It, it's tricky making the case for another browser being funded only by search revenue, for instance. Well, yeah, given all that, I find it interesting that, that what you decided to do was build another browser. Uh, but we got to take a quick break before we dive right into that. Uh, so we'll be back in, in just a few moments with, uh, with Brendan Ike. 
talked to Daniel Reed, head of design at TopTal, about their new expansion into TopTal designers, doing for designers what they've done for developers. We talked about why TopTal works for designers, and this is what she had to say. As a designer, the big, or as any kind of creative person, the big overarching question is always like, how can you find inspiration? Um, And for me personally, and for a lot of creatives that I've spoken to, it's really about traveling, exploring, and being accountable for your own career. And I think as a top tile designer or a remote designer in general, the ability to be able to switch up your lifestyle change contexts, meet new people, uh, have new ideas sort of infiltrated into your life by having that freedom and flexibility is something that's absolutely fundamental to doing great work. That's the real power of TopTel, I feel. You're not just stuck with one product, one company, or even one agency, but you can choose to work on multiple occasionally or a range of different clients. Um, And I think that that keeps you fresh. It gets you involved in new technologies, different people, and is really fundamental for being sort of switched on as a designer. All right, that was Daniel Reed, head of design for TopTal. To learn more, go to toptal.com slash designers. That's T-O-P-T-A-L dot com slash designers. Tell them Adam from the Changelog sent you. And now back to the show. So in our last segment, we were talking a little bit about sustainability models for browsers. Could you talk about how Brave makes money? Well, we're... We're a startup. We're burning right now. So, how brave plans to make my list? Put it that way. Yeah, that venture capital. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you can still get, as I say, search revenue, and we actually have search partners already. Like DuckDuckGo is a search partner, and we're making, you know, t- uh, lunch money from them, um, which is good. And and we help to build that up because people who skew toward Brave do like DuckDuckGo, and that's. You know, that, that's a, an up-and-coming search engine that emphasizes privacy, so it's in many ways aligned with us. It's just not our default search engine because uh, Google's still, you know, the people's choice, as far as we can tell. And as I say, on the, the long tail of multiple keyword queries, it's still the best. And if we didn't make Google the default, we suspect a lot of our users would reset from our default, say it was DuckDuckGo, to Google, and then we would be stuck because ethically and, and just in the market, we wouldn't want to override their, their choice. We could never get them back on a default that might be a better search engine down the road. This actually happened to Firefox. It's public information, right? People studied this like Danny Sullivan's search engine uh, blog. If you, if you look at what happened with the Yahoo search deal, they, in December 2014, made uh, Yahoo the default search for Firefox. And we'd had Google since Phoenix, since forever. Uh, we, we had a, a good de- commercial deal since 2004. Um, that Yahoo default didn't stick. A lot of users reset to Google over time. And so Yahoo was probably paying, I don't know, but I, I, I'm guessing they were paying a lot, possibly even a guaranteed payment for declining traffic. We don't want to do that in Brave, but we will make some search revenue from pe- people who choose DuckDuckGo. And as the game theory w- would suggest, all the the non-Google search engines generally are willing to pay for non-default traffic. That is, for those users who choose to switch to DuckDuckGo or Bing. Uh, they'll pay better if you make them the default, and, and you know, Bing is still trying to grow. So they'll, they'll do deals, like I mentioned, Vivaldi, that's, as far as I know, still using Bing as the default. But we can get some money out of search. It's just not going to be huge, and we don't want to count, count on it exclusively. Right. So another idea we have 
is the micro donations we're already supporting with the Brave Payments beta. If you use Brave right now, since 0.12.1 or 2, you can actually get um, money into your user wallet and have it sort of anonymously, deterministically anonymously, and, and with low you know, transaction cost distributed among your top sites. You can turn off the sites you don't want to support. You have 30 days of ongoing sort of personal chart beats in your own browser. This is on device only. In your, in your browser, no tracking. And at the end of that 30-day period, which is a personal period, uh, there's reconciliation. Anything you excluded or decided at the last minute you didn't want to fund gets left out. The other sites get what are essentially votes in sort of a zero-knowledge proof voting system based on some cool academic work called Anonize. And that gets sent through a VPN connection to our infrastructure, so we don't even see your IP address and then we, we mix it all together and we count the votes and we count the funds. A lot of people are putting $5 a month into the system. Um, and we distribute it to publishers. And we're starting to do that now. Uh, just this week, I think our publisher page will be up um, very soon. That means uh, we'll get some small fee-based revenue off of that, but we have to cover our infrastructure costs. So I'm not, not sure that'll make us a lot of money either. Uh, so that's, you know, that's, that's another way we'll make some money. I think if everybody who used Brave donated $5 a month, they'd be essentially replacing their sort of average cost or, or median cost in terms of lost ad revenue. That would be cool. I don't think everyone's going to do it. Also, we need to get, you know, million users, 10 million users, 100 million users. But if, if all those ifs came true, everybody did $5 a month and we had 100 million users, you know, we'd be making $3 a user a year. That's $300 million. That's enough to run a browser like Firefox. That's what Firefox often ran on in the old days, uh, pre-Chrome. So I think um, it would be nice if that happened, but I don't think that will happen. I think the donor cohort will decline as a fraction of our user base. NPR gets like 30% listeners donating, but they, they do pledge drives. They're a, a nonprofit. We, we are getting uh, early adopters skewing toward donating. We have like, I just looked today, 11,000 wallets, and we're only in beta. The average uh, balance in the wallet is over five bucks. So people are doing this, but it's, it's voluntary. And so we can't count on it either. Um, but we'd like to build it up and see how big it can get. And we think it's a good deal for publishers too, because they don't have to worry about the lost ad revenue if they're getting these donations trickled back to them uh, through, through Brave Payments. I mentioned Brave Payments as an auto micro donation system, but there's there's a, you know a general e-commerce we could do with Brave Payments. If it's just on the Bitcoin blockchain, it could not involve us. There's no need for an intermediary. That's one of the beauties of Bitcoin, and we wouldn't make anything. But we'd like to enable that. We think that there's upside there. Generally, there's too much friction doing buying things on the web. Still, obviously, if you have an iTunes or Amazon credit card relationship, it's one click and away you go. But you don't want to do that with every e-commerce site you might want to buy something from. And it's kind of scary to give over your credit card to another site with all the breaches. So people sometimes use PayPal, but PayPal you know, has its issues and it, it's not universal. We'd like to make uh, frictionless small payments a thing, a web standard, if you will. And there's nothing proprietary about it. We'd like to have Brave just be a pioneer. Just like you know, pop-up blocking or tab browsing was was known before Firefox or Phoenix, but we popularized it. We'd like to make uh, future payments that are frictionless, no intermediary, no interchange charge. We'd like to make that a thing. So sort of baked into to the, 
the model there is that by default, you're blocking a lot of ads and tracking and stuff like that. Like you, you, you have a view of the user and of privacy that I, I don't think a lot of other browsers have gone quite as far. Could you detail a little bit the degree to which you kind of rip that stuff out of the, the user experience um, and what you kind of replace it with? Yeah, so that's the really radical idea, and it's not uh, fully implemented. But Brave, with the right you know opt-in, we we wouldn't want to surprise users with this. But Brave should be your personal Google. It should be your sort of personal data set and machine learning, which adds value to the data. You know how people say Facebook sells your data? They don't, because if they did, it would all get quickly arbitraged to a low price, and it's seasonal enough. There's enough repeated. Um, behavior among users that it wouldn't wouldn't be um, necessary for them to keep selling it. It would be like extracted in, in bulk. Facebook doesn't sell all your data. What they do is they say, come onto our platform and do ads, or come onto our platform and transact in a very limited way with the data. And that's what Google does with the web. Google is a really brilliant uh, you know, once in a generation business. They started with search ads, very clean because when you're searching, you have strong intent, right? You're looking for something you're, you're willing to see a promotion, especially if it's algorithmically well-placed. well, well placed. It could be better than the organic results that you know, AltaVista would have found in 98. That's why Google started rising fast then. And they did search ads even then. They were making enough money. They got a famous angel investment from Andreas Bechtelsheim. He asked, you know, he asked them, oh, how do you make money? And, and Sergey said, you know, placed results, <laughs> search ads. And um, Andreas said, how? I'm using AltaVista, but they get tricked by pages that put a little dictionary in an HTML comment, and suddenly that page is authoritative for every word in that dictionary, and they get undo search rank in AltaVista. What do you do about that? And Larry Page said, oh, you know, we take care of that because we count incoming links to build reputation page rank. Uh, and then Andreas said, how much are you making? And this was like 98 when Sergey and Larry were still, I think, on Stanford campus. And they said, oh, 100000 a month and growing. And Andreas said, let me go to my car and get my checkbook. And he wrote a famous <laughs> angel investment check that paid off very well. That search ad business is still strong for Google, but search is kind of flattening out, right? The smartphone is less of a searchy device. It's more of a social and bespoke search or, or you know, custom app experience. Uh, voice is rising. AI is changing things. Search is flattening. It's going to be a challenge for Google to keep, you know, satisfying Wall Street's needs as a public company. But Google also did something clever in 2008. They bought DoubleClick because they, they saw if you didn't convert on those search ads on the search engine result page, you know, those quality texty results up top that were, were clearly identified as ads, but sometimes could be better than the organic results. If you didn't click on those, you went off into the organic results and you visited publisher sites and e-commerce sites. You kind of got distracted and surfed a bit for fun. You know, celebrity stalked somebody a bit. Then you came back to your major purchase, but maybe you did it through an e-commerce site. And Google had no piece of that action. So they bought DoubleClick because DoubleClick had a display ad business. They were all over publisher sites. They were on a lot of e-commerce sites. And they had cookies. They could build audience profiles by tracking people across sites. That gave Google a sort of more complete model of the user from search through browsing to various sites that DoubleClick had cookies on or other footprint on. Uh, and Google's been integrating things ever since. Like YouTube's gotten big. In some ways, they're eating the web, <laughs> eating their own ecosystem, but they're also getting a more complete user model. I think you may have seen Chrome even now will be mixing your history into the, the advertising model if you don't opt out, I believe. Um, so powerful business, 
but it's got some downside, right? It, it increasingly Google and Facebook own 90 cents of every marginal ad dollar spent, every extra ad dollar being spent this year above last year, 90 cents out of it goes to Google and Facebook. And that's not a stable setting, even if you don't mind those two being the new duopoly on search and, and ads um, or social and ads, because uh, Facebook's coming after Google and Google's search business is flat. So there's a problem there. Also, there's huge privacy problems. People just don't like being tracked that way. They get retargeted by bad ads. They get you know, creepy ads, ads make your eyes bleed, parasite pictures, belly fat reducers, wrinkle reducers. Um, and they get malware now. Malware is actually being placed and has been for a few years. And this is kind of an underreported story because a lot of it works by being ransomware. It holds your PC hostage, encrypts the disk, and says, here's how to get buy Bitcoin and send Bitcoin. And it charges not too much. So grandma pays 600 bucks or 1200 bucks to get her pictures back of her grandchildren. And she's too embarrassed to admit it. Mm. There was a hospital in Southern California that was actually, all the systems in the hospital were prone by ransomware. So that, that gets you more on the FBI and Interpol radar. But these are criminal gangs hiding in, you know, nation states that don't necessarily prosecute them. They're using very sophisticated exploit kits. That's the payload that, that downloads and tries a bunch of vulnerabilities. And the ones we know about from the last year and a half, Angler in particular, use Flash and Silverlight and Java plugin vulnerabilities. Brave turns off plugins by default. The plugins should die. Steve Jobs was right. <laughs> Thoughts on music? He was right about DRM. Thoughts on Flash? He was right about Flash. <laughs> God bless Steve Jobs. <laughs> um, you know, I, I'm not going to endorse everything he ever did, but he did two solid things there for, for the web and for security. And, and uh, these exploit kits now are trying browser vaults. I'm pretty sure Neutrino is the one that superseded Angular, and it's, it's trying browser vaults because every sophisticated endnode piece of software, endpoint software, as Snowden said, is endlessly vulnerable, and you have to keep patching it. That's, that's what Chrome does. That's what Firefox does. That's what Microsoft does now. It was one of the lessons of the last uh, 15 years in browsers that you have to release all the time to keep ahead of the, the exploits. You have to fuzz test your code base with travesty JavaScript generated JavaScript that finds all the, the safety bugs. Um, so these exploit kits are out there and they're coming in through ad exchanges. How do they do it? They actually create fake ad agencies. These are fake businesses with fake CEOs and CMOs, fake people, pictures, bios, and they go and buy ads in, in ad exchanges. They put custom creative ads, I should say, into ad exchanges. They, they pay the fees to get into the exchange. And then in real-time bidding processes, automated ad exchanges place these ads on publisher pages. Sometimes they even gateway to other exchanges. So they get onto a, a crummy ad exchange at a low price but they can claim to guarantee some you know, conversion or some performance to whoever's uh, buying the, you know, the publisher who wants to, to sell the ad space for the ad. And the publishers fall for this every time because they want to fill every space they can with ads, even at the bottom of the page where the, the parasite pictures are. And they generally don't directly sell that to brands or agencies. It's not good space. So they say, oh, sure, programmatic ad partner, come on in and, and own my space and put whatever you want in there. And the programmatic ad partner, programmatic just means automated if, if it means anything, goes and says, okay, let's use this ad exchange. Let's use AOL or OpenX or Yahoo. Pretty soon, you don't know where those ads are coming from. They're coming from Russia, but they look like legitimate ads. And here's the crazy thing. Sometimes if you scan their JavaScript, 
they all come with JavaScript for tracking pixels to confirm that the ad was viewed, things like that. Um, you don't see anything overtly bad. You might see some funny little image uh, processing loop that maybe is commented innocuously to look like it's doing something to you know do gamma correction on the image. What it's actually doing is steganographic decoding of an exploit kit loader from image pixel perturbations. In other words, steganography hiding uh, some kind of signal, um, a covert message in, in an image or a picture is being done to hide the, the, the guilty code that's going to load the Angular exploit kit. And this leads to the New York Times, BBC, AOL, and other top sites in late March having ransomware malvertising on their properties. If you think about it, this is actually an outrage, right? Why should world-class online publishers tolerate this? Why should they not control the quality of, of the ads? Why shouldn't they have only direct trusted relationships? Well, as I say, the, the bottom of the fold and even the middle of the fold, middle of the page ad spaces just aren't as valuable as the top. And even big publishers that have direct sales forces and their own tech teams and do beautiful custom sponsorship ads, like my favorite example, Louis Vuitton handbags on L.com, E-L-L-E, uh, you know, fashion site. That, that takes up the bottom half of the front page above the fold. It looks nice. It's, it's, a, it's a trustworthy ad as far as I know. There's very little third party about it. There's some tracking and you know, it's a custom video ad from Questra or somebody. But it's, it's pretty legit. That's not the problem. It's the stuff below that that all the publishers want to fill their space and make a little bit of money. Otherwise, if they leave the space dead, they're just leaving money on the table. And that leads to malware coming onto pages. So to get back to Brave, we saw this coming, right? We said ad blocking, even in 2015 when we started, was rising. We started in May 2015. We didn't know that iOS 9, thanks to uh, Tim Cook, would, would start making ad blocking easy to use with Safari. They make it an app install model instead of a browser extension model. They make it content blocking. And it rose you know, quickly to the top of the App Store uh, last fall, uh, and it became very popular until it saturated short-term demand, and it changed the whole conversation. It made people across the ecosystem, from the marketers who spend on advertising to the publishers who rely on whatever of that spend is left after all the, the middle players and the parasites have taken their skim, it made everybody say, oh, no, this is going to be, a, uh, ad blocking is not going away. It's not just Adblock Plus or uBlock Origin. Now it's iOS, right? It's Apple. And Apple had walked away from advertising as a business, I think, twice. But it wasn't just because ads are annoying or unesthetic. That's, that's a very shallow way to characterize it. Ads are actually dangerous because they're overdelegated through these ad exchanges. And there's no contractual relationship. Doug Crockford knew this. If you remember Doug's work at Yahoo with AdSafe, which was a static verifier for JavaScript, it was kind of like um, before Google Kaha, which became Secure ECMAScript, AdSafe was Doug's very picky way of trying to get Yahoo ads not to contain malware. This has been a, a longstanding problem. And as I say, it's underreported because ransomware, the price the criminals extract is, is low enough. People are embarrassed and they can pay it, get their system back. Uh, it's very hard to track these, these criminals down. Um, but you know, even ignoring the ransomware threat, just the privacy problem, that your data profile is constantly being sucked out of your machine and you're not benefiting from it, you're actually suffering from increasingly worse ads, even ignoring the malware. Just annoying ads, retargeting, which is when you get hammered by an ad you've already seen. Um, because it, 
sometimes nags you into buying something you wouldn't or reminds you of something in the best case that you forgot you do want to buy. It has a little bit of lift, like a fraction of percent, and that means that it's going to get done. It's not going to be left on the table. That money is not going to be left on the table. So advertising has become this, this toxic parasite system, in my opinion. It's over-delegated. There's too much principal versus agent conflict of interest. There are layers of that. And along with that, there are layers of confirmation bias in the data that's extracted and modeled. So they say they have great data, all these ad tech companies. They, they want to get go public or they want to get bought by Oracle. And they say they have magnificent data, which will increase yield. But if you look year to year, the actual performance of advertising, the yield so-called, doesn't really go up. Money just goes from one pocket to a different pocket. Publishers are still suffering. And there are long-term negative externalities, like secular trends that are bad for everybody, like the rise of ad blocking and the rise of malvertising. So Brave is trying to address this, but not just, I'm being very negative here, I'm not, we're not just going to cure something that's bad for you. We want to make things actively better. We want to make this anti-Google, personal Google. We want you to be in charge of your data. And that means not only should you not have bad ads or annoying uh, you know, ads or dangerous ads, you should have a piece of the action. You should get revenue. You should be able to control the terms of the economics. And if you don't want ads, you can donate. And then you can block guilt-free. There's a lot of nuance in here around, um, you talk a little bit about the misperception of the problem with advertising is more than it's just a visual distraction, but it's actually harmful. Do you think that nuance transfers to potential users of Brave? Because in some ways you are becoming the publishing platform, right? Or the publisher. Do you think that users will understand that your version of advertising is different from the type of advertising that they're currently exposed to? We don't know. It's a great question. I think among the early adopters, lead users, yes, they get it. A lot of them are outraged by the, the malvertising stories that broke this, this spring. And it was really great for us because we had the late March malware on the front page of the New York Times. Then we had it April 7th, I woke up and there's a letter from the Newspaper Association of America couched as a cease and desist, but we haven't done anything yet to actually cease and desist. And those words don't occur in the body, but it's full of threats and crazy legal theories, including that these Newspaper Association of America members own the copyright on those ads that we would be blocking or possibly. <laughs> and how could they own that? Because it's malware from Russia or wherever. They don't own the copyright in any sense. <laughs> those ads are injected by JavaScript in your browser running on your page, communicating with third-party sites with ad exchanges. Nothing to do with New York Times. There's no creative work, ensemble work that has the ads. They're actually, I think they're, the, the lawyers, it's generally the associate GCs that join these trade groups like Newspaper Association of America, now called the News Media Association. Newspapers have been in decades-long decline, but they, they, they view the ads as ink on paper. It's like we're sneaking up to grandma's porch and we're effacing the ads that they printed <laughs> on the Sunday New York Times, and we're, we're pasting up our own ads to trick grandma into you know, transacting with our, our advertisers and us getting a piece of that action. And first of all, we didn't do any such thing. We only talked about how it could be better if we did something like that. And you know, second of all, there's no ink on page ad the New York Times owns. The ads are third party. They're placed through JavaScript. Another one of my you know, guilty um, legacies with JavaScript is how it's, it's used for third party ads. But there's really a, a deep topic here. Will people appreciate it? I think mainly people appreciate speed in browsers. They appreciate safety. And we're leading with those. Safety is, is a broad term, but I include privacy. People say, oh, you can't market privacy, but you can. And the Snapchat built up 
good cohort uh, doing disappearing messages. People care about things like secure communications, WhatsApp's doing end-to-end encryption. And people will care after a crisis. Like Snowden changed things for a lot of people. I think that as things evolve, we'll have more concern about privacy. It's, it's often driven by crises and revelations. People just didn't know they had a problem until they had one. So we don't need to get too detailed on the economics, uh, but I wanted to paint a picture because there is a lot of money going, uh, exchanging hands here. A lot of middle players taking big cuts, very little for the publishers. So Brave cares about users first, and we think user attention is not fairly priced. We care about publishers too. If you can't you know, keep a website a going concern, the web's in trouble. So we'd like to see publishers get paid better. And that's where we think if we get the right experiments done with user opt-in and publisher opt-in, we could build a better uh, sort of, I almost want to call it a promotion system because the idea with advertising online now, Joe Marchese, founder of Truex, I think Fox owns it now, said this, you're shotgunning people's attention across 10,000 web pages. That means you're wasting a lot of money because first of all, a lot of people guessed wrong. They didn't go to that site. Then you're retargeting them, which bugs them. They, you cross the line, they get an ad blocker. They're lost to you. What if you could just get the right information at the right time in the right place to the person who's likely to actually benefit from it and be happy with that marketing information? That's the, the ideal model for advertising. It solves what's called Wanamaker's Dilemma. There was this guy, uh, Jude Wanamaker, who had a chain of department stores in Philly 100 years ago, and he is alleged to have said, um, my problem with advertising, at least if I can get the quote right, it's not clear he actually said this, is half my advertising budget is wasted. I just don't know which half. Right? He's, he, even then, he was shotgunning newspapers or you know, catalog ads, and some of them missed the target. Theoretically, with a very private system like Brave, where your data is kept on device, we don't see it on our servers, we use zero-knowledge proofs to transact uh, things like payment or donations or uh, ad impression counts in aggregate. Theoretically, you could keep that data secure. You could become your own Facebook, your own Google. You could do your own ad business. Be a very personal ad business. It would be a right information at the right time business. It would not be replacing one-for-one all those indirect ads that we block. It might even be using a different channel, like a full-screen video channel or a set-aside personal mall. Maybe some people might prefer to get an email once a week with promotions. And these would be really well-targeted. They wouldn't annoy you. They would give you a deep discount because the marketing side wouldn't have to spend for those 10,000 ads, half of which are more, maybe 90% or more, miss the target. So that's, that's the big idea with Brave. It, it goes to search, too, because when you search with Google, and Google does that great result, they're better than Bing, as I said, they'll probably always be better. They have the oldest data set. They have the oldest machine learning that's co-evolved with it. But what about your keywords that you type in? That's your data. So again, Bray's point of view is you own your own data, not just your browsing history, what's visible, how you opened a tab from another, where you were scrolling, but also your keyword queries to search engines. And that's a very hot data set that you should benefit from and we should protect on your device. So we're looking at the whole picture. And when I say anti-Google, I, I don't mean it in a hostile way. I mean, somebody needs to build this. In the coming world where AI is everywhere, you really need the cloud superpowers owning all your data from your house, your cat, your, your own body monitors. I think there are scale advantages to the cloud and to clustering AI calculations there, but a lot of it is personal. A lot of it could be done in your home server or even on your phone. And so there should be tiers of AI and machine learning and tiers of data where some of that data doesn't even leave your device. Maybe only abstracted summaries or anonymized summaries leave your device. 
that's the really big vision here. And I think people will build this. I see more signs startups are doing this. Uh, it's instead of building, you know, some surveillance device based on cookies or search or everything in the cloud, they're doing local computation. They're doing things that can be defensively secured in your pocket or in your house. And that's, that's where Brave fits in. That's a really good point to stop for our next break. Uh, when we come back, we'll dig in a bit deeper into uh, how we can fund the web. Hey there, Adam Stukoviak here, Editor-in-Chief of Changelog, talking about Minio, a better alternative to ZFS and BitRiff-like file systems. It's an S3 compatible option for you. So if you're in the need of a low cost, but highly available storage cluster, it's powered by an object storage S3 compatible overlay. Minio is for you. You can get input objects programmatically using their SDKs. They're available in Golang, Python, JavaScript, as well as Java. Minio is useful for on-demand compute functions like thumbnail generation, antivirus scanning, and metadata extraction. And for our DevOps friends out there, Minio plus K8S Kubernetes will allow you to build massive multi-tenant cloud storage environments. You can use Mesosphere or Docker Swarm as an alternative for your orchestration. And Minio does not require special hosting. It can be deployed to our friends at Linode, Packet.net, Hyper.sh, or even DigitalOcean. Head to Minio.io to learn more. And thanks to our friends at Minio for not only open sourcing Minio, but also for supporting this show. So one of the things I found really interesting about sustainability issues around developing and using browsers is that a lot of those challenges are really similar to funding and sustaining open source. And a lot of your work also dovetails with figuring out ways to support content creators and publishers. And so I see these sort of like there's these these trends across all these different kinds of really big, important institutions in the web or um, really important ideas, but they're all clearly valued by society, but they're also really hard to financially sustain. Um, why do you think it's so hard for us to find good answers to these problems? <laughs> the story of my life, I was a yes. <laughs> Unix, Unix kernel hacker at Silicon Graphics before I ended up at Netscape. Um, and I, I, I always worked on platform code. I, I think you see it's, it's pretty explicit now. Um, you're seeing open fintech uh, through the Symphony Foundation and other things. Uh, you see a lot of companies realize that open source is better for, you know, quality assurance, uh, recruiting, uh, lots of things that traditionally they would have to pay for themselves so they can share the cost of platform code. Or what um, Georgios, I forget his name, uh, Contaxis, I think at Georgia State calls evolutionary kernel code. This is the sort of stable uh, code that's conserved, like, you know, the, the best DNA in a population. It's like the... Um, TCP IP or JavaScript. Mm -hmm. it, it, once you stabilize it, everybody can build huge systems above and sometimes even below it, right? You can have multiple link layers and go from Ethernet being 10 megabits on, on, on copper uh, all the way up to uh, fiber metropolitan Ethernet or whatever ATM cells and, and, and still have this TCP IP in the middle. And sure, IPv6, but it's not really taking over and it's all evolutionary. JavaScript ES6, <laughs> there you go again. Um, the platform code, the evolutionary kernel code, that, that sort of the commons in, in the best sense of the word is a cost center. When I was at Silicon Graphics, as it developed hot, you know, killer graphics workstations and then high end multiprocessors and low end, you know, a desktop, um, graphics workstation like machines, 
eventually to be killed by the PC and the GPU in the 90s, the kernel group that I worked in and the network sort of software group got kicked around. It was a cost center, it was an albatross, or else it was uh, a source of talent for building out something important for the multiprocessor business. So it got kicked from the hot product group, the not hot product group, and back. I think it even got divisionalized a little bit, not fully forked. HP did the same thing. And so I, I see a pattern here where open source is serving the commons. It's not serving the differentiated, you know, risky or, you know, for-profit uh, innovation. But for better or worse, some of that stuff stays proprietary. Um, but anything that starts to become a, a platform starts to become a cost center and needs, needs to have its cost shared if it's of interest to many other players. And how do you fund that? Um, I wouldn't say it's exactly like publishers because publishers often are like, you know, these for-profit, but not always. You look at um, Dow Jones was longtime family owned and subsidized. <laughs> In some ways, we need uh, Carlos Slim and Jeff Bezos to prop up the nation's number one and two papers of record, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Newspapers have been in decades long decline. And, and they always relied on advertising and subscriptions. And subscriptions never paid for the whole thing. They were always, I think, a minority of the revenue needed to run newspaper business, even back in the heyday, um, you know, the, the, the golden age of newspapers. Um, because people would subscribe and there was some revenue you made there, but advertising paid the bulk of it. And that's still true. So the way I look at this is not to say we must have advertising. Advertising is always good. There was a TV executive I heard about in the 50s who said, it's inconceivable that television will ever be other than free and advertising supported. And of course, we have Netflix now. So you'll never say never. Maybe the, the brave donation model in some future you know, frictionless micro donation, micropayment, micro royalty world will will suffice we still have free television with ads for sure even with netflix um but it's more that if you look at how costs are covered you have to look at what's happening today and so if 70 billion is spent on ads in the u.s i think this year um or maybe it was last year it was around 70 and um facebook and google are taking a lot of it they're taking 80 percent and the increment in spending from last year maybe it went from 60 to 70 of that 10 billion increment, they're taking 90%. Um, that's not leaving a lot for the publishers. And if you look at how the publishers do their ad businesses, they have to pay if they sell direct ad space. If they do indirect, they're at the mercy of malware, like I said, but they're also getting far less because there's so many people in the middle cutting out from the pie. By the time the pie gets from the marketing side to the publisher, there's very little left, like 35, 40%. I've heard less. Um, but still, that's a lot of money. That's billions of dollars a year. And these, these companies need to get it. So how would you go about replacing that? Just assume for a moment things need to be replaced as is, that we won't, won't get a better model. We won't find a new way of, you know, we won't find fusion energy like Sam Alton thinks would make electricity free. <laughs> I kind of doubt that. Um, but, but just ceteris paribus, all else equal, how would you replace that $70 billion? I I think about that a lot. And I think... Um, First of all, I think a lot of it's wasted on ads that never are viewed. This is the big scandal that's been breaking for the last year or so, thanks to my friends at White Ops Security. There was another um, group uh, whose acronym I'm forgetting, ANA, I think, that did a study that showed there was a lot of fraud and, and kickback nonsense going on, and a lot of ads aren't being viewed. Facebook recently announced that its video ad metrics were off, <laughs> way high from what they actually were. Um, and they were and they were charging accordingly. So you know people are kind of mad about this. Um, 
But we have computers, we have smartphones. We could theoretically do a very private platform that measures what you're interested in without giving away your, your, your data profile or your privacy and matches valuable uh, opportunities to you and gives you a cut. So that, that, that makes me think there's a way to fund the web, even if it's not a commons. But certainly for things in, on, like a publisher site that is more of a commons, obviously Wikipedia is an example, but there are others, or uh, you know the, all the open source software that everybody wants to share the cost of because it is the cost center. It is even an evolutionary kernel in some sense, and it has to be sustained by everybody chipping in. Uh, I think there are ways to fund it. It's just we haven't found the ways to do it. And that's why Brave's doing Bitcoin under the hood. We're not, it's not like we love Bitcoin. We don't want everyone to learn about Bitcoin. We do not intend people to have to become Bitcoin gurus. Uh, we haven't announced yet. We're doing a deal where you can easily just trust us with your credit card to do a recurring charge, a small charge, to get Bitcoin. So you don't have to think about it at all. Currently, the way you fund your Brave wallet while we're doing this Brave payments, beta is with a Coinbase buy widget, so we're partnering with Coinbase. Uh, but you still have to think a little bit about Bitcoin. And the publisher side, they're getting Bitcoin out. We're going to make that easy to get fiat out. We'd like to use something like Bitcoin, though, because we think there's a future where you have a frictionless system, no interchange charge, none of the hidden charges that are associated with credit cards where fraud sticks the merchant with, with the, the overhead or the, the cost of, of you know, having funds clawed back to the bank. The, the interchange charge, if you know what that is, is like two and a quarter percent or something. It varies. But the char hidden cost of fraud is high, and a lot of merchants have to eat it. Uh, it's not a good deal for them, not, especially the small businesses. So I think there's something coming to, to the web in, in terms of frictionless payments, whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum, Classic or son of, you know, daughter of, redheaded stepchild of both. Uh, there's something coming mm -hmm. there. And, and it, it, the important properties are the permissionless property, no intermediary frictionless property. Ideally, it would be anonymous and capable of doing micro transactions, which Bitcoin is not currently. But that's why Brave has this Brave payment solution. We, we solve that ahead of you know, some next generation solution that is coming to Bitcoin. And we want to, again, make it just work with your, your native fiat currency. Um, and if that happens, then I think it'll be easier to micro tip, micro donate, have micro royalties. Think about the Ted Nelson Project Xanadu vision, and now think about VR if it ever takes off, or AR, because it really should be in our you know, sunglasses. Um, and if, it, if in 10 years it, it probably will be, then all the great stuff creative people build for the augmented or virtual world can't really DRM it. It's a shared world. There's too many eyeballs to ray trace and path trace to. You can't say, these are encrypted pixels and you cannot touch them or we'll you know, put you in jail under the DMCA. That all your models and your texture art, they're going to be out there, just like they were in Second Life. How do you protect that stuff? Well, you can watermark it. That's a traditional method. It goes back to you know, real-world paintings and documents. Uh, that is more of an identification system for prosecuting gross copyright violations after the fact. What if you could just have automatic micro-donations like Ted Nelson envisioned? So people, you know, people, uh, micro-royalties, I meant to say, people are looking at or using or borrowing or you know, creative commonsing, mashing up some, some bit of art, there's a micro-royalty associated to the artist. That can be automated too. And that's another thing that I think uh, you can do with cryptocurrencies if you do them right. And that should be part of the web standard, future AR web. <laughs> so I'll pause there because I've said a lot, but you can see that there's a big vision here. And I, I hope it's exciting to everybody because it goes way beyond just browsers. Totally. 
I, I like that the way that you're talking about it too is that Brave is this pioneer in the space and not necessarily the only place that's going to do this. It's it's you know it's actually similar to how we got a lot of things in other browsers. There was always one browser that kind of led the way for some reason, and then everybody else eventually picked it up. Right? Yes, absolutely. And and it took Firefox to restart that because IE was on Skeleton Crew and. Microsoft was tired of the web and wanted to go back to Windows lock-in. Yeah, absolutely. Take, take some innovation. I think it's bold that you are experimenting with a couple of different uh, revenue models with Brave, where you have something that's a little bit more experimental, like the micropayments, and you acknowledge it's experimental. Um, and then you're also looking at, well, what is working right now? And where does, like, where does money come from now? And, and can we just kind of like work with that um, in the advertising world? I, I feel like it, we see that tension a lot with in open source, where some really useful tools in open source that shall not be named are not necessarily open source themselves um, because they recognize the need to have centralized big solutions. Um, but then sometimes it's really okay to like democratize stuff or to try like smaller experimental things. Definitely. I mean, we have to experiment, but as a business, we also have to figure something out because we can't just keep uh, raising venture capital as Michael was joking earlier. <laughs> and, and I think it should be possible to have, um, you know, going concern. Uh, you mentioned um, where the money goes today, and it goes to ads. And ads are kind of compromised by this indirection through third parties you can't trust, and that's a problem. So anything we did that was replacing that means of getting funds to publishers would have to be less delegated, more secure by design, and that's that's what we're working on. But you know, um, it's still kind of a a two-edged sword because people hear ads and they just think, oh, yuck, or doesn't that put you in conflict with your users? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's why we, we say the user should get the same revenue share we get 50-50 between us and the user as far as the amount. It's not like we're trying to say only to us. We could even give it all to the user at first. At some point, we have to sustain ourselves, so I'm not sure what the balance would be, but we're starting with 50-50 because we want to align the user's interests with ours. And if we do a good job defending the data, then I think many things are possible. But it is, you know, ads are very <laughs> the thin edge of the wedge. It's just that so much is misspent on them today that it's attractive to try to bend the system, reform it a bit. And that's why anything we do would be privately matched. I haven't talked about this, but we wouldn't do any cookies or signals for Brave users. It would be all based on, on device matching. It's like you get a catalog of available ad URLs with you know, two or three keywords associated with each. And then based on your local machine learning, you evolve a set of two or three keywords that might be good to promote and you'd match those against the catalog. And that can be done with no signals out. You just download the same catalog everyone else downloads once a week or as whenever the campaigns roll out. That's just one idea. We have the zero knowledge proof protocol, anonized based protocol for confirming that ads were viewed because at the end of the day, all that the marketers care about is that there were millions of authentic impressions. They don't want to identify each of those million people by name. Well, some, some people do. The, the middle players who build data profiles do, but they're the ones we want to actually go away. I'm sorry, but somebody's got to lose. <laughs> Couldn't have a nicer bunch. I'm friends with some of them, but there's too many of them. They're taking too much money out of the system. They're running away with your data and privacy, and they're letting malware in. So that's when I tell a story, I like to not make it sound like everybody, everybody wins. Not everybody wins. <laughs> <laughs> So what, one thing that I'd like to get to before we close out, um, it, it, you know, you've made a decision to do this all open source. There's probably a lot of market reasons to, to continue to do all this open source. But a lot of the work that you're doing funnels into open standards and open source work. It ends up becoming this uh, diffused benefit over time 
to a bunch of other essentially competitors to your business. So what is the kind of uh, justification and what is the internal logic that you have as a business and, uh, and how do you put this to your investors where it is this clear benefit for us to do it this way? Oh, it's pretty easy. I mean, first of all, we're an ad blocking browser and browsers see all your, your browsing data and history. People wouldn't trust us, I think, if we were closed source. They'd think, oh, if you're talking about anything, even if it's opt-in at first, like ads, you could be spyware. You could be like this class of scummy toolbars that does ad injection. Very dirty business. We don't want to go near it. So being open source lets us be auditable, both in terms of the code being all readable and auditable. And we can have you know, audits like we're having uh, least authority audit our payment system right now. Uh, we hope to have the Tor folks audit us with an eye on Tor support. We also can have verified builds, at least on Debian. It's hard to get verified builds. They might come to Windows and Mac through the tool chains from the OS vendors. But verified builds means you know the bits don't contain a backdoor because you can prove that they came from a certain vintage of all open source. So open source is, is pretty darn important just for optics and, and trust. And I think it should be. I think people should audit us and we, we, we welcome it. We just launched our HackerOne security bug bounty program too. Uh, and open source makes that just a lot easier and better. Um, even though you can you can do black box bug bounties, it's just a pain. Um, proprietary code doesn't really work. For us. What I think matters beyond trust is, and as you say, eventual standardization is our brand is really tied to our users. It's not like we're we're going to have a partner who keeps us uh, going. It's really our users growing to tens of millions and maybe beyond. And that brand value is sticky. I think if they trust us and our code is auditable and we do a good job and our you know, ultimate suite of micro donations and ad blocking, tracking protection, anti-fingerprinting, maybe even optional ads that share revenue with you that are matched privately and confirm anonymously, all that stuff happens, we'll have a huge you know, uh, good kind of lock-in just from the user trust. Other people, other browsers could implement what we've done. It could become web standards. I don't care. They'll be late to the party and they'll be competing with us on a, on a footing that users will benefit from, which is, are they trustworthy? Did I get a good revenue share? Am I getting, you know, my micro donations through to my publishers with a low fee? Things like that. That's great. It's a great way to close it. Thanks for coming on, Brendan. This was fantastic. Yeah, thanks, Brendan. No problem. <laughs> oh, it's fun to talk about the old days, too. <laughs> yeah. Always. <laughs> All right. Thanks. See ya.